Hey everybody, welcome to episode 61 of Metallicast, the Metallica podcast. I am your host and fellow Metallica fan. My name is Brandon. On this episode, I'm joined by Tom Bajor and Richard Beanstalk, the authors of the book Nothing But a Good Time, The Uncensored History of the 80s Hard Rock Explosion, on sale everywhere March 16th. This is a great book that tells the oral history of 1980s hard rock and hair metal from the people who lived it. Members of bands like Van Halen, Motley Crue, GNR, Bon Jovi, Ozzy Osbourne, as well as managers, producers, label executives, so on, so forth. Corey Taylor, of course, from Slipknot Stone Sour, wrote the foreword. If you are at all interested in the hair metal, glam metal, whatever you want to call it scene of the 1980s, I highly suggest you read this book. It is very well done. Now, you might be wondering, hair metal on Metallicast, a Metallica podcast. Why? Well, we talk about that in our conversation, and I do think there is a lot of crossover, some perhaps obvious, some perhaps a little bit more subtle, but I do think there is definitely a lot of crossover between Metallica and the hair metal scene, even though that might be a controversial comment to make to some of you old school metalheads who are listening. Beyond that, too, Tom and Richard have a very long history of being in music journalism, working for the likes of Revolver. They have a long history of covering Metallica and just heavy metal and hard rock in general. And on top of all that, they are fans. So this was a great conversation. I had a lot of fun talking to them. So here's my conversation with Tom Bajor and Richard Beanstalk, the authors of Nothing But A Good Time, The Uncensored History of the 80s Hard Rock Explosion. My guests today are the authors of the new book, Nothing But a Good Time, The Uncensored History of the 80s Hard Rock Explosion, on sale March 16th. Please welcome to Metallicast, Tom Bajor and Richard Beanstalk. Tom, Richard, how are you? Good. 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 Of course, pleasure is all mine. Now, you know, we, we were talking about this beforehand, Tom asked, you know, why did you want to have us on the podcast? Because... You know, our book is predominantly about hair metal, glam metal, whatever you want to call it. Um, and this is Metallica podcast. But, you know, I think there is a lot of crossover. And I, uh, one with the listeners, I think the a lot of 80s metal fans were fans of, you know, Metallica, Ozzy, GNR, Motley Crue, all bands that you cover in your book. And uh, I also think, too, that, you know, with the band themselves, there was a lot of crossover um, at first, in the early days, I think Metallica played the role of outsiders, like kind of F this music and, uh, you know, that it's uh, cheesy and they wear makeup and big hair. But, you know, as time went on over that first decade of Metallica's career, there ended up being a lot of crossover. And, you know, Metallica works with Bob Rock on the Black Album, who, you know, worked with Motley Crue and Bon Jovi. And they're doing, you know, more expensive music videos with, you know, Wayne Isham, who... I know it was featured in your book and uh, has, you know, did videos for a lot of those bands as well. So I'm just curious to hear from you guys before uh, we kind of backtrack and kind of get a little bit more about your background. What do you think is 
sort of Metallica's place among all these bands that you cover uh, during the 1980s? Well, one thing is, is that in the beginning, in the early 80s, they were the support band for a lot of these bands. Right. They, you know, they opened for Twisted Sister, I think, in Europe and in the U.S. Um, and I believe that they were also they opened for Queensryche and they were on the on Brian Slagle's first. Was it the Metal Massacre compilation that yeah. Brian Slagle did yeah. on the first one with Rat? Right. Um, so, you know, I think that. And they were in LA and they were in LA. So I think in a weird way, they were probably buying beer at a lot of the same places in LA before they went North. <laughs> and, and, you know, they they had the same man, Kurt, uh, Cliff Bernstein who manages Metallica managed Dokken, right. you know, Queen's and Tesla. So there's actually, there definitely is a lot of, you know, the same, people involved in both worlds so i think they they definitely fit in 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 that way and then you know later on they helped destroy winger <laughs> <laughs> yeah um yeah and look i mean if they're long-haired dudes in la in the early 80s like there's overlap with these bands i think it's i, I don't remember if it's motley Crue or dockin that winds up playing a gig with them early on at the whiskey um but there's also, as Tom mentioned, the whole Brian Slagle connection and Rad is on Metal Massacre and also, and Motley Crue where Brian Slagle was talking to them about putting out their first record, doing Too Fast for Love, um, before they did it on Leather. Right. And I think Brian Slagle was the one that set them up with uh, Green World Distribution, which put out Too Fast for Love. Um, so they were in those same circles. And Brian Slagle is in our book and talks about how much he loved Motley Crue and how much he loved Rat and how much he loved Wasp. Like he was going to see all these bands of the same. So I think, you know, and you hear this a lot, like there wasn't, people didn't, it's the same thing like when it all ended with hair metal and grunge, like people, at first people didn't think of these things as so diametrically opposed. Like it was all just heavy music by sure. dudes with long hair. So like Brian Slagle listened to Metallica and he listened to Motley Crue and like probably didn't see that much difference. So there's definitely that overlap and there's also a story that I will get wrong, but that Lars has told many times about um, like Nikki Six chasing him down Sunset Boulevard or Hollywood Boulevard in like 1983 because they had been mocking, you know, the the way Motley Crue looked with the yeah. high heels thing and like, and Nikki is a big dude and he's an even bigger dude in high heels and, and <laughs> after him. So these guys, like, they knew each other for sure. Yeah. And then in the end, they become, you know, there's, I think there's like a whole chapter in Sebastian Bach's book devoted to doing cocaine with Lars, with <laughs> Lars and hanging out at his house for like three days straight and not right. sleeping. Yeah. I was going to say, you know, I, I feel like it, there was a lot of tension between the bands, but I think in retrospect, when you look back, it was probably more friendly competition. And I think if you were to sit down with the bands today in 2021, it's probably a lot of mutual respect because there's, you know, you like you guys were saying, you come up through the same clubs, you know, a lot of the same people, you run in a lot of the same circles. And let's be honest, there's only so many bands that, you know, can have the career a lot of these bands have had. Totally. Yeah, I think so. So to backtrack a little bit, what is sort of your guys entry point into metal and hard rock in general? Uh, well, for me, the entry point was actually Motley Crue. Um, it was being 
seven years old and seeing the looks the kill video on MTV, um, you know, 1983, I guess. And just being like completely enraptured. Like these guys to me look like superheroes. They were, they were just like from another world. I mean, you know, that, that video and it's discussed in the, in the book is, is there's a lot of questionable things going on beginning with, you know, herding women into cages and hunting them down and all this other stuff that certainly made no impression on my seven-year-old brain <laughs> but you know nikki six with his spiky hair and like his mad max outfit and all that like made a huge impression um and for me like that was it from then on um and for me i i got into it like my entry point into all of it is as a guitar player and that's how i ended up being a you know an editor at, at guitar world and stuff but so, like i you know definitely was into um you know i i'm older than rich so i saw the quiet riot video when i was like 12 and then i was really i was into everything at once it was weird like so i definitely had like remember sitting in my room i would do this thing where i would turn battery up as loud as possible <laughs> and and wait while the nylon string guitars were going and then sit there like it was very it was very bevisian <laughs> because i would just sit there like all clenched like this <laughs> like and he's like ding 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 bum 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 i would just sit there and when the electrics came in i would just be like ah! and like my whole room was switching so i was into the thrash stuff as it was coming out yeah. as well as the hair metal stuff and indie rock stuff um you know and being a little older i saw um the clash of the titans tour the original one um you know i i, I saw metallica on the monsters of rock so i was definitely in and then obviously when i started revolver i got like fully all into to metal again but but glam metal for me and like poison white lion those were the bands that really in a weird way captured my imagination maybe because they were more melodic and something that rich and i have often discussed they're also the bands that when we started in journalism you weren't you weren't really allowed to like no one covered them in right. the late in the mid 90s early to mid 90s and even up to like 2000 you just weren't ever given the opportunity to talk to people in skid row and stuff like that i mean maybe once in a while so it was something that we'd always really been wanting to do because we hadn't had a chance to the focus was just on you know what was more popular at the time i assume whether it be you know the new metal movement of the late 90s or the grunge movement of the early 90s or what have you yeah yeah sure. You know, we would their guitar world would put like pre pre presidents of the United States and Bush on the cover before, you know, at that time. Not and you know, it was just a whole other, right? You know, and then it had Monkey, and like it was just not this stuff was just not being discussed, and now it is yeah. again, yeah. yeah. And everything kind of comes full circle, you know, like the I think you're well, you're already starting to see like the several years ago, you started seeing like the hair metal revival tours where you know the package tours where they would all tour together then of course before covid we were supposed to get that big stadium tour right of what was a motley crew and poison and joan jet Def Leppard. Jet, Def Leppard, yeah. yeah yeah 
And then, uh, you know, and I think you're starting to see that it with new metal bands, you know, which I always kind of thought new metal was sort of the hair metal of that era in a way, you know, um, you, you know, with a band like Limp Bizkit, you kind of have the over the top party anthems. And, um, so and I think you're starting to see over the next decade, more new metal revival tours and whatnot. Um, so it's just sort of, everything comes full circle, you know, it's funny how that works. Yeah, for sure. So do you remember the first time, Tom, and you already mentioned, you know, being into thrash metal and listening to Battery. Do you remember the first time you heard Metallica and what your initial reaction was? I'm trying to think. It, it probably had something to do with WSOU. I'll tell you that. Because that was my local radio station. Right. Out of New Jersey, right? Out of New Jersey, Seton Hall. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't know exactly. And I know I had Master Puppets when it came out, but I don't remember who hit, who hit me to it. Do you? How did you get into it, Rich? Like, I can't remember what yeah. who was like, check this it's out. Like, I definitely got into, given how much I was into this kind of stuff that's in our book, like, I didn't really get into Metallica until, until the one video. Like, that might have actually been the first time I heard them. Yeah. Uh, I loved it. And I remember, you know, and then I got Injustice for All and listened to it incessantly. And then I remember I was in Florida visiting my grandparents and I got them to buy me Master of Puppets. And <laughs> I remember sitting out by the pool in like their, you know, elderly community, like <laughs> listening to Master of Puppets. And for whatever reason, at the time, it sounded so much different to me than Injustice for All, and to the point where like I couldn't like deal with it. I actually think that I had them take me back to like Tape World at the mall, and I returned it because like I mean, Battery to me now it all sounds kind of the same, but for whatever reason, to my you know preteen years, like Battery was like so much more intense than you know even Blackened, which doesn't really make sense but like it, it right. i was like I'm not, I'm not into this you know and like then i got into it but like it just really hit me in an, in an, in a weird way like it, it sounded like two different bands to me like it's something about like james growing a mustache like <laughs> helped help make the music palatable for me that yeah. I, I didn't deal with master the first time i heard it yeah sometimes i feel like you know when you're younger you hear something you're like i'm not ready for that i remember the first time i heard pantera heard vocal display of power which is now, you know, one of my all-time favorite albums. But the first time I heard it, I was just not ready for it. I had, I had been listening to Metallica, but Pantera was sort of like the next step up in a way. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I'm, I'm just not ready for that, you know, for that amount of heavy. And then, you know, at some point, I forget when I went back to it, I was like, all right, now I understand it. I can appreciate it. I can now I can it. handle it. Yeah. <laughs> and like, it's just not like there's just a, a bar that like for whatever reason, like you don't go past. Yeah. So when did you two sort of meet up and what led to you guys wanting to collaborate together on this book? Obviously there's a lot of uh, similar interests there. We've known each other forever. Like we've known each other <laughs> since we, yeah, because I was at guitar world in like 1990. I started in 1994 at guitar world. And then Rich arrived a couple of years later, actually as an intern. Cause he's yeah. like, in so, so we've known each other, what is that, 24 years? 
<laughs> and um, we've talked about doing this book for about a decade. <laughs> you know, like, like, like for real, like we've talked, we've, we've, we batted it back and forth, even when I was, I think even still at Revolver, certainly when I was a guitar aficionado magazine, um, we already were discussing it. And, um, you know, it's this one area of like, we just always ended up no matter what we were doing and we would end up starting to talk about like get we'd get in real deep about like faster pussycat or tesla or something or like it's just been the way we've it's what we've always conversed about right and even now that we've written this like 600 page book we're still out <laughs> we'll still be like hey man what do you think about you know blah, blah. so and have have like long unnecessary conversations <laughs> about glam metal so it's really like it's just been this common thread of like what we've discussed for, for so long. Yeah. Um, and, you know, four years ago when we really decided to do it, um, you know, it just made it, it made sense and it felt like it was time. I don't know if we, it's possible, you know, that even four years ago, like I wouldn't credit us with being like, Oh, we timed this because there's like a, 80s revival now with cobra kai and the dirt came out last you know and and yeah. the stadium like i wouldn't credit us with that level of intelligence or, or, or our but i think probably our sense of urgency of doing it like was part of this whole thing of like suddenly everybody like but like i we both knew would you agree rich that like we had to do it like we had to start like we're like we got to do this now yeah there was a feeling that like we talked about it long enough and, and, you know, I think one of the reasons that we did talk about it for so long without doing it was because of our, our shared passion for this music and knowing like if we kind of opened that can of worms, like there was no going back and it was going to be super intense and super intensive. Um, and it was, but it was, it was certainly worth it. But, but yeah, I mean, as far as like, yeah, it, it probably goes back 10 years for us talking about it, but then it goes back 20 years um, and more of us just talking about this stuff all the time. And like, you know, and especially it's, 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 I feel thankful for knowing Tom, because especially as you approach middle age, there's not that, there's usually not that many times in your life where you can really like just sit around and talk about like white lion, you know, but I think I've taken it for granted that like, I've just always been able to do that with someone um and my wife is probably thankful that i don't do it try to do it with people, you know they have something <laughs> there but like we've been with this book we were able to sort of like legitimize like our real passion for this stuff and put all these conversations that we've been having like to to good use yeah we're not just fans now we're experts <laughs> <laughs> it's i was laughing when you were saying that rich because that's basically why this podcast exists. So, <laughs> you know, uh, my wife got tired of me turning every conversation into Metallica. So then I was like, I, all right, I got to, you know, even if I just talk into a mic by myself, I'll get it out of my system. And then fortunately people started listening and other people want to come on. And so now I can talk to other people and <laughs> yeah. I get it all out of my system. And then, you know, <laughs> I now I would say 90% of our conversations are, Metallica free. There's still 10% that, you know, right. But you'll never completely eliminate it. But, um, <laughs> the book is, uh, basically an oral history from, uh, 
amazing list of people who uh, lived these stories, had these experiences firsthand. Um, Nikki Six, Brett Michaels. I was personally very happy to see you mentioned Brian Slagels in the book, and I saw Bob Nabandi, and both were past guests on this podcast. Um, I'm just curious what the process was in putting the whole thing together from deciding, you know, who you want to speak to, what the interview process was like, and then choosing what you felt were, you know, what made the cut, what, what did, what, how did you choose what you thought was the best or most important stuff to include in the book? Um, go ahead, Rich. I mean, the process, as far as who to go after, I mean, it, it sounds, you know, sort of glib to say, but like, it was just go after everyone especially um and that's really what we did i mean as the book started to take shape we we got a little more sort of you know directive in in what we were doing but you know we 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 set out to just get as many voices in there as possible and that's why you know we have a section at the end of the book where we also mention uh, there's a handful of people that we interviewed who didn't make it into the book for various reasons mostly just because their narrative didn't sort of push forward the the larger narrative but that sort of you know exemplifies the fact that like anyone that had any connection to this world we were we were reaching out to um which is how we wound up with over 200 people that we we spoke to um but you know and i would just say generally speaking that also meant like yes we knew we were going to go after all these artists but from right from the beginning we knew that we were going to go after you know, um, producers and managers and agents and label people and, you right. know, the, the people taking the tickets at the club and, and designing the costumes and all that. Like we were very interested right from the start of telling the story beyond just the artists and really going into the background and the music, I mean, and the business and all these other parts that helped to make the scene what it was. And we knew we knew we we're going to follow like we had decided sort of we we had a rough idea of which, you know, there are about 10 bands that we follow all the like their their stories all the way through, like Cinderella, you know, Faster Pussycat, White Lion, um, Vixen, like and we so we had um, Winger, we had a Skid Row, we had a rough idea of which were going to be the major bands that we would course their entire, uh, you know, chart their entire course through their career and so even there you know like okay we got to get everybody in the band or try and then you yeah you go for the managers and the booking agents and the producers um and so that that was a, a big like you know once we had that list of like who we were going to try and we, each of us luckily has different obsessions <laughs> so like i can talk to you about white lion like all day like we can we could drive many miles and i can talk to you and rich can talk to you for the same amount of time about wasp or faster pussycat so we both have like areas of mania that so and we were able to divide up the territory that way i was actually wondering that i was as i was reading through about how it was divided up if you guys were tackling it all at once or if you guys like took one band at a time so that makes perfect sense yeah, although we actually were kind of tackling it all at once at the yeah. same time. There was no, especially when it came to doing interviews, like it was like getting anyone when you could and however you could. Sure. So you're doing all these interviews that really have nothing to do with each other. And 
I don't even know that we, Tom, that we like set up who was doing what bands early on. Like it sort of just worked itself out. Yeah. Um, and in some places we overlapped and one of us had a couple guys or, you know, people from that world that we then gave the transcripts to the other guy, but it wasn't talked about that much until it just started to kind of show itself. Yeah. It, and how were the, the bands that you focus on primarily? How were, how was that decided? Was it just a personal preference or were they 10 bands that you thought were like the most important to that decade, to that genre of music? Both. Um, both, both, there's a couple bands that are in there just cause we love them. And then, you know, look, it's, it's, um, you know, it's one of the things I, sometimes I feel like I, I'm letting people down cause everybody's got the band they ask you about. Is that band in the book? And, you know, is Lillian Axe in the book? It's like, sorry, you know, they're not, is, is Vane in the book? No. And it's not because I don't, I have Vane and Lillian Axe records, you know? Um, it's just, we look there, there's in every genre, you know, you're, there's your big four, your big five, your big 10. So we weren't trying to be um, perverse about it. You know, the, the the bands that we picked were the ones that had the mostly the biggest fan bases and and therefore more people would want to read about, you know, and who right. sort of moved the whole story. Um, you know, and then we have our, but like a lot of it was based on that. I'm just like, who are the band or bands that are symbolic of something like, you know, covering, um, like to me covering, do we follow Nelson all the way through there? They're, and to me, we do that because they're like sort of emblematic of one of these bands that came out late in the era. And so, and so really only gets a chance to put out one record before shit goes completely sideways right um you know and this so some bands are there because they their experience tells a larger story of of a whole bunch of bands in that subset and how long was the process like how long did it take you guys to compile all these interviews and go through all that do you even know at this point? <laughs> I mean, from when we actually started writing to now was about four years. Like we, yeah. you know, we've looked back and we, we kind of saw like there was a point in 2017 where, where we started reaching out to people, um, started to put together two of the chapters that are in the book began as sample chapters that helped to shop this book. Um, and we were talking to guys like Stephen Piercy and JJ French from Twisted Sister. And like, these were the guys that kind of kicked it all off, but it was a pretty steady four year process with, with periods of inactivity and periods of like freak out, you know, mode and like periods of like really intensive writing. I'm trying to look in my calendar right now to see when, I interviewed Cliff Bernstein for the book, but it's got to be three and a half years ago already. Oh, like wow. it was, it, was yeah. it took, you know, it, it, it took a while. Um, sure. There was about six months where we hit a wall too, where we were like, there's no fucking way we're able to finish this. And then, and then we like, so there was a little, little bit of a pause, like where it, it just, the enormity of the task paralyzed us for a second. Yeah. Um, and then we were able to 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 marshal our strength. <laughs> so I, I obviously we do not want to give too much away because we want everybody to go out buy the book uh, out March sixteenth. But you know, it's a, so many of those bands were so debaucherous, and there's a lot of stories in the book. Maybe some stories that did not 
uh, make the cut even. Uh, is there any like really fun stories or funny stories that you guys would be willing to share? That you heard during the process? Yeah, I mean, well, I will say that th there are some stories that didn't make the cut. Um, and they didn't make the cut for, I mean, some of them for just legal reasons, like they were not going to get by the lawyers, you know, yeah. and, um, and those were interesting, <laughs> you know? um, and some, and some of them disturbing, but as far as, <laughs> you know, one of the, one of the things that we, we've come back to a few times, I mean, there's a few guys, um, that, that really have some good stories, um, one of them being the Nelson guys, which I'll let Tom talk about because he he did those interviews. Um, if he wants to talk about that, but uh, Tammy Down from Faster Pussycat was one who, you know, Faster Pussycat has that image of the sort of they have this sort of sleazy, you know, raw kind of debaucherous thing going yeah. on, and and they actually that's that's pretty true to who they were, um, and definitely true to who Tammy Down was and maybe still is. I'm not going to speak for him. Um, but so he had a lot of good stories to tell. And the thing that was great about him is he's funny and he's also unguarded and he's also not telling these stories to, to glamorize it or to sort of puff himself up, but he's just kind of like, if that's what happened, he's just going to tell, tell you what happened and he's just right. going to lay them all out there. Um, and that was great and really refreshing. And in addition to faster pussycat, he also had all these stories about starting up the cat house. Uh, which was kind of ground, you know, ground zero for a lot of this sort of mid eighties debauchery. So he was definitely somebody that, you know, we didn't want to focus too much on that kind of stuff in the book. Mm -hmm. uh, but when that kind of stuff pops up, like probably like 70% of the time, like Tammy down is involved. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. And he tells it with great flavor. I mean, <laughs> The same thing with like the Nelson guys are just hilarious, you know, um, you know, there's, and, and like, there's a one scene in the, in the, tour, like where they get off to the, you know, I think it's Gunnar Nelson gets off tour and his, his fiance picks him up at the airport and she's like, did you cheat on me? And he's like so tired at that point that he's just honest. He's like, yep. <laughs> like, <laughs> He's like, yeah, I can't tell a lie, and and you know, and like so, like, like basically, like she like throws him out of the car, um, and you know, there's things that are, and these are like less politically correct or whatever, but like, and this is really, if you want, like, this is how when the, when making this book was really fun. It's like somebody said one of the guys in Doc and tells Rich, like, you know, we had video cameras in the back lounge of the bus, and you're like, oh okay cool and like you know and we would film you know other dudes in the bands hooking up with groupies back there and and then like you actually go and you, you're not sure like man maybe that's true maybe that's true and you go and you ask like three other dudes in the band they're like oh yeah totally <laughs> then you and then you ask um jj french from twisted sister because Dokken was opening for them on that tour and he's like oh yeah man like they're but and you build these stories out of interviewing different like all these you get all these different voices right out of out of this like one little tidbit that like one person might mention and they don't even really think that like it's that important like oh yeah we had some cameras <laughs> in the back of the bus and you're like you get that on tape and you're like now i must go dig deep 
Well, you know, if that's what you're used to, I guess, you know, you just throw it out there as a, oh yeah, there are some cameras back there, you know, no big deal. Just what, just what you did. (laughs) Yeah. But then, you know, the other part of, of this, this part of the book is that some of these stories, the best stories you get are from the guys who are not in the bands because the guys in the band lived this 24 seven for, for 10 years, you know? So like they, if, they don't really even have a story to tell because it's all, that's just their life. It, it not, it's not that extraordinary. Um, but when you get a dude from Electra Records going down, and this is a story in the book, goes down, he takes the head of Electra to go see Motley Crue in Oklahoma City. Just, you know, some random tour stop on the Theater of Pain tour in 1985. So they go there and they're checking out the front of the house and the crowd and everything. Then they go backstage and you know you get to see the he paints the picture of what a backstage at a motley crew concert in 1985 is like and through the through the eyes of a guy who this is his only time seeing it um and that's that's a cool and disturbing story you know and there's and there's yeah. stuff like going on in the bathroom and there's stuff there's a door that has like i think it has like dog pound written on it you know and they open up the door and it's just women and in various states of undress and probably of various ages, but, you know, and, and like you're, you see it through the eyes of somebody that didn't, that wasn't his life. And I think that gives a, a more real picture of what this thing was because like Tommy Lee's not going to be able to tell you anything about that story. Like that's just, right. he doesn't remember. Yeah. Like that's why <laughs> you tell me when I have dinner, you know, like, so, yeah. so you, you get those kinds of stories from, from these other people and it, and it's illuminating in a different sort of way. So going back to sort of the crossover with Metallica and some of these bands, obviously uh, back in 1986, Metallica opened up for Ozzy Osbourne. I know you talk a bit about Ozzy and Randy Rhodes and that whole thing. And then, of course, in the early 90s, they opened up with GNR, who you discuss in the book. These Both these tours, historic and at times infamous. Um, what do you think these tours meant uh for metal and hard rock in a general during the time they took place. Hmm. Well, for one thing they meant like it was just the two biggest bands in the world. Right. I mean, like that was the whole deal is like, I think that there's almost like there, that there was this mutual respect there, you know? Um, And what year was the Metallica, the Metallica Guns and Roses tour. I believe 1992. I want to say maybe 93, but I think 92. Yeah, maybe 93. I mean, they're also out there staying afloat. You know what I mean? Like they're yeah. bobbing and weaving. Like that was, you know, that um, that to me, I'm actually kind of fat, fascinated with that aspect. Given that in our book, you know, all of these bands get kind of a lot of the bands get destroyed in the early 90s. Sure. Like the fancy footwork executed and even the thrash bands get destroyed. Like really, like nobody really wants to hear from Testament or, you know, Mm. Megadeth or any of those bands in like 1992. Like the fact that, that Guns N' Roses and Metallica were somehow able to navigate through that and still be huge has always been kind of amazing to me. Like they didn't, they didn't really take the hit. Um, sure. And I've never, you know, there's something really 
to be respected there. Like they did not um, somehow get, you know, get tarnished. And a lot of bands, again, like I remember being a guitar world in the early nineties and like, you know, like whatever you would cover Testament and, and stuff like that. But really that also was not, had gone out of fashion along with glam metal in a weird way. Yeah. So the, when these bands were touring together, I mean, it was in a weird way, like this, like l these like massive survivors to me, you know, of like, mm. we could still do this. I always thought it was almost like defiant. Like we we will not be taken down. Yeah. I don't know. That's, that's what I got to say about it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let me ask you a few final questions. What do you think these, this is when it gets tough. What do you think? is the best metal or hard rock album of the 1980s oh well um i mean you know i th i think uh like are we sort of separating metal and hard rock you know like i don't well i i feel like you know that's a good question but i, I feel like in my head it the lines blur so much you know and there's right. so much crossover like even just looking at Ozzy Osbourne, right? Like he's the godfather of metal, but you listen to so much of his material, like, well, that's not really like, yeah. you know, yeah. like Mama, I'm Coming Home is not really a metal song, so to speak, but there's right. no denying that Ozzy Osbourne is metal. You know what I'm saying? So right. I, I feel like they kind of blend enough together. Yeah. I think I think it's probably something of somewhat of a boring answer, but, you know, Appetite for Destruction is certainly in the top five maybe number one like just yeah and just in in every way i mean in terms of it's a great record in terms of the impact in terms of the way like it sort of changed the landscape i mean it's it really is one of these records where you know it's still it's still great 30 something years later and it's still as intense you know like i i mean i have a young son and like he get he's pretty into that kind of stuff now and like you hear that sort of music through young years as well and like you see it still makes that same sort of impact that it did yeah. on, in 1987 when it was new and like there's something to be said for that that it's just like it doesn't really it doesn't really age in a lot of ways yeah it's really quite timeless mm -hmm. i'll give it to two records because i'm going to do uh, i'm going to do something uh Two records mixed um, by Michael Wagner. I think both in 1986. One, like, which is a, this is a weird thing, but hold on, I'm getting I'm getting something on purpose. <laughs> the listeners, the listeners will not be able to hear this, but I'm holding the first one mixed by Michael Wagner is "Poison Look What the Cat Dragged In," which I will go and I, which I'm displaying that I have the cassette version. Yes. Of it. I have it in every format. Um, I, I'm not really going to sit here and argue that it's like the greatest, but it is my one of it is my favorite. Is the like that is the record, and one of the reasons we did this book is like, I'm a huge Cheap Trick fan and like guitar power pop stuff like that, and like to sure. me, and you know, like I'm not I can't really I'm not going to sit here and like go song 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 for song and really try and convince people like, oh, it's better than Appetite for Destruction. But in terms of my favorite that's my favorite like that's the one that i can actually listen to when i drive home tonight and listen to it tomorrow even after writing this book it just gives me joy and then also 
oddly, and just I'll give it to you for your podcast because I spent at least as much time listening to it, mixed by Michael Wagner the same year, Master of Puppets. Yeah. You're like and- that dude, that dude did those two records in a 12 month span. <laughs> he makes those two records. Um, and just, I, I mean, I know that I learned, I can only tell you that I learned to play every song on both of those records on guitar. The Poison songs I mastered more easily. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny you mention that because we're actually recording it, uh, recording this on the 35th. Is it the 35th? Yeah, 35th mm-hmm. anniversary of the release of Master Puppets. Wow. 35 years ago today. And you're sober? national holiday well i mean at least for you know we'll wrap up in a few minutes and talk to me again at 11 o'clock you know we'll see (laughs) i'll be i'll i will have that battery experience that tom had as a child (laughs) i just really remember doing that um but ultimately i mean just to like really i i think it's too bad in a weird way that that all these bands did end up getting like pitted against each other in the, in the end, because they were actually hanging out behind the scenes. Like what I said earlier, Sebastian Bach and, and, you know, well, I guess Skid Row was on that tour, but I don't know. Um, I guess they're only certain, like, I guess the, the people who were the Metallica fans had to define themselves as not, as not being poison fans. Yeah. Yeah, I think there were certain bands that had a certain amount of edge that you could, you know, if you are a hardcore thrash metal fan, you could publicly say, you know, I I like, you know, Guns N' Roses because they had that kind of sleazy edge and um, more of like a punk rock attitude in a lot of ways. But you could also say, you know, I like Motley Crue because they had, you know, more of the devil imagery and whatnot. But I, when it got to Poison and some of those other bands, like it, when it was it's too bright and too maybe feminine, you know, and it's just, uh, I think that's when, you know, the hardcore metalheads would be like, Oh, fuck that music. But I think secretly, I mean, everybody knows the words to talk dirty to me. Let's be honest. (laughs) And, and, you know, and to the, to the point that you're making too, I mean, Metallica, it's worth mentioning, do make an appearance in, in our book and, and the place where they make an appearance is, in, in one of the Winger chapters um, when Kip Winger and Red Beach go into, you know, a discussion about the Nothing Else Matters video when Lars Ulrich is throwing a dart at Kip's head, you know, the, right. the, the picture of him on the wall. And yeah, I mean, to your, to your point a little bit, you know, Kip, even to this day, like he's, I mean, he's over it, but he's a little bit bitter about it. And I think he makes some comment in the book about like, you know, Rod Mor- Morgenstern, who's the, Rod Morgenstein, who's the drummer and winger, you know, he, he compares him to Lars Ulrich and, you know, about what a better drummer Rod is. And like, mm. look, I mean, Rod Morgenstein was in Dixie Dreg, so he's a great drummer. Whether or not you think someone's better than someone else is like your own personal opinion, but it kind of showed like he was really hurt by, by the expression of that sort of divide between these bands. I mean, and my guess is Lars probably didn't really think much. Of, like it wasn't something they probably put a lot of thought into like doing. It was just a fight right. in the moment. Like it wasn't really that he was trying to destroy Kip Winger's career. Like that might've happened, mm-hmm. but 
it wasn't an intentional thing, but, but yeah, some of these bands really saw it as like very directive and very, very hurtful, you know? Uh, in the first year of this podcast, so this was a few years ago, I, I actually did uh, an entire episode about Winger called Winger Sucks, just to quote Beavis and Butthead. Um, but we went into the whole backstory. And did you know that there is uh, a Winger song called uh, Hell to Pay? And it's basically Kip Winger's musical reaction to his Metallica beef and the whole bridge of the song is he basically is like aimed towards Metallica and he works in like Metallica song titles. I'm going to try to pull up the lyrics here (laughs) real quick. Um, This was like, it it was an outtake song um, that, uh, but appeared on like a winger best of album. Um, You can definitely find it out there on, line and on like the streaming services um so the bridge is it's sad but true you tread on me as if nothing else matters my friend of misery (laughs) your struggle within is that you believe you're beyond them the god that failed you and when you finally find what you're after is when your servant becomes your master wow yeah I would say that Tom lost the conversation as you were. Um, no, I was like wondering. I'm like, is it possible that does Kip Winger owe them publishing for that? <laughs> I just loved it because it's like he just had the Black Album cassette, or you know, went down like the back of it, the the song listing, you know. Yeah. Um, I think it must have been really horrifying to be him, though. Like, like really yeah. to like, you can't get blasted by Metallica and survive it. I mean, like, you know, to the point of like their mightiness, you know. Especially during that time when it you was can't get peak, couldn't, couldn't yeah. withstand. Like, who, who, who could fucking withstand that? Right. Really, like, not you know, um, probably no one. You know. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I mean. And I think that's the thing with a lot of, um, maybe not a lot, but some of these, you know, artists from hair, from the hair glam metal genres that they became easy targets, even though most of them are phenomenal musicians, even Kip Winger, he's like a classical composer now. And he's like a very skilled, uh, musician. I'm assuming I, I've actually not heard his classical pieces. So I'm talking a little bit out of my ass, but you know, he's, I think there's a lot more to him obviously than, you know, what he did in winger and what in how I think a lot of people view him and in his music now, um, you know, it, it, it's just, you get painted as one way, but obviously there's a lot more to a person than how we perceive them as a, as the public. I mean, and then I'll, 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 I'll let you wrap it up, but I think one of the more interesting things and what, one of the best interviews I did for the, for this book, was cliff bernstein because he's so smart yeah like that dude is fucking like smart smart and he talks about you know the last part of this book is about the end of the era when when you know all of the bands that we're talking about sort of just get like thrown onto the trash heap and he talks about transitioning um his management company, I mean, they had Metallica and they had, you know, 
Tesla at the time, and I, probably they still had Def Leppard, but they knew at the 1992 v- VMAs they went mm-hmm. and literally says, like, we were there and we saw the hostility of the new group of bands towards bands like Def Leppard, and they literally flew home the next day to New York and started calling people and being like, you know, we're not just into metal. You know, I, like yeah. Cliff Bernstein actually signed Per Ubu to their record deal. Mm. Like he's, you know, and he's like, I signed. and so like within a week, they're flying to Sweden to take a meeting with the Screaming Trees to manage them. Right. Like, so those dudes, you know, they scramble too and they were smart. And, and even running Revolver for 10 years, you could tell that with Metallica, like, you know, they were, you know, when we would ask them, like, hey, you want to do something with Avenged Sevenfold or you want, or like, like Lamb of God, like they were very, they know when, like, they need to, like, embrace, like, what, like, like, oh, this is happening, you know, sure. Let's, you know, um, it's a very intelligent organization. Um, it did help Tesla probably that much, but like you know, but like <laughs> he Cliff Bernstein, Cliff Bernstein really is one of the more interesting and funny people in 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 the book, you know, because he was there, he was managing docking, he passed on Motley Crue, you know, like he could, you know, um, they had a lot, they 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 had a lot of fingers in this in the in the glam metal pie, yeah, so to I speak. Mean, but it- <laughs> I mean, it just shows too, Every right? Pie, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I mean, and it shows too, right? Because I mean, Metallica has sort of transcended becoming a band into a brand, right? They're a household name at this point up there, you know. And the same like the Rolling Stones are a brand, and the Beatles are a brand, and Led Zeppelin is a brand. Metallica is now that brand, and you become that successful and have had their success for that long. Of course, you know, the music is a big part of it, but it's also the branding, the marketing, the and, and all that's the smart people that you have behind you, including in the fact that they've had the same management team and stuff for most all their career and everything. All that stuff, you know, just really helps. And of course, a little bit of luck is involved as well. But, um, you know, I think that's really what separates them from a lot of other bands that came up at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I so. so let's end on this note just a really quick question favorite metallica song mm. creeping death hands down it's a classic nothing's better than chanting die at a concert well <laughs> and, you know also like as, as a as a as a jew um <laughs> i like the song that it's about like my my you know it's you know it's about the god of the of the hebrews going out sure. and just fucking slaying <laughs> yeah. so but, but um yeah one of the most always the, the best live song and just like i think my hands down like like just it's sometimes even like kind of a little bit i find disconcerting i mean i've probably seen metallica like 15 times or something i don't know more mm-hmm. maybe and like you know, he could at during that song, like if he was like just in there and he was like, oh, if, like James was like, die, die, die. Now, turn to your left and punch the dude on the left. <laughs> like everybody in the audience would be like, what? Okay, boom. Like he like during that during that that breakdown, he owns yeah like fifteen thousand people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
it's like I've I've I always like and, and when I watch that I've, I'm always like wondering like what it must be like to like no wonder you end up maybe having like substance abuse problem like how, how do you beat that rush sure yeah like oh, I had like 15,000 people pumping their their fists <laughs> and uh chanting die and you know I'm gonna go home and mow the lawn right like you know it doesn't <laughs> work <laughs> yeah <laughs> Well, I think too, just having people give a shit about what you do, right? And like yeah. when, when people listen to this podcast, I'm like, you do. <laughs> so I can only imagine when you have fifty thousand people singing back your music, you know? Yeah. How about you, Rich? Favorite Metallica song? You know, I, I'd probably honestly like one of my favorites is still "Hit the Lights." You know, I know it's the first song, and but like, there's something about. I, I still listen to Kill 'Em All a lot. There's something about the way that song just kind of explodes in the first verse and the chord. Like, it, there's something I, that song to me is always a rush. And it's one of those songs where it's like, it, it sounds like kids creating it. Like, it, it, yeah. it, it almost is like when I listen to it, I feel like I'm listening to them like create it in the moment. It right. just that freshness to me, like every time, you know, almost 40 years later um the other one i mentioned because for whatever reason my my son suspected that you were going to ask this question and so he <laughs> told me to say injustice for all because it's his favorite um and then my wife is actually a lawyer so she she agreed that that should be the favorite song um, so i'd be remiss if i didn't actually mention injustice for all as well i'm always partial like to the two albums like to to there's something about Kill 'Em All and Ride the Lightning, like before James's balls dropped. <laughs> like his, his his voice is different on those two yeah. records. Oh yeah, totally. Like it's higher, and to me, there's something about those records. And I love Master Puppets and 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 Injustice and stuff. But there's something about those two records and that like 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 Rich is saying that adolescent voice yeah. of his. Um, that to me, I don't know. It's more unhinged. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, yeah. It sounds really untamed and like wild. Yeah. And I just yeah. love it. Yeah. yeah I, I mean, I feel like Master Puppets. When you listen to it, you can, like, when I listen to it, there's obviously a lot of energy and attitude, but there's you can, you it, it feels very sophisticated at the same time when you yeah. look at the compositions and everything and the arrangements and the performances. But whereas Kill 'Em All, especially, just has like this almost like brash youthful energy that just bleeds through your speakers. And it's like they, even though it's tight, you mm -hmm. kind of feel like they're stumbling their way through it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's why, like, and I know that this is a Metallica podcast, not a Megadeth one, but it's why like, I've always preferred the mechanics to the four horsemen. Ooh, controversial hot take here. <laughs> well, because like mechanics really sounds like it's about to fly off the rails at any. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. They're playing too fast for themselves. Like they can barely sure. keep up with each other, and like it's really they're really barely like holding it together. And I mean, also the lyrics are insane and <laughs> they are. But like musically, like it's just so off the rails that like I just yeah, I, you know. Whereas yeah. Four Horsemen sounds like mature like compared to it you know sure yeah, i was thinking too as you were saying your picks rich i'm like hit the lights is probably 
as hair metal as Metallica gets <laughs> lyrically. You know, when we start to rock, we never want to stop again. There you go, yeah. And then the mechanics is uh, perhaps as hair metal as Dave Mustaine gets. You know, <laughs> it, with the you know sexy yeah. uh, gas station attendant. <laughs> Lackey like, Lawless might look at that and be like, "No, we can't do that." You know. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Tom Rich, thank you so much for coming on Metallicast. Uh the book Nothing But a Good Time The Uncensored History of the 80s Hard Rock Explosion is out everywhere March 16th. Uh so please check out your copy. Uh please get your copy wherever books are sold. Tom Rich, thank you. Any final thoughts before we before you leave us here on Metallicast? Uh, I just want to say that your eyes actually bulged a little out of your head when I said James is bald. <laughs> <laughs> and that made my evening. <laughs> um, no, the only other thing I would say is if it's, it, I, I know it seems a little bit like uh, an annoying thing, but we, uh, if you are inclined to buy a book uh, such as ours, our first week sales are really important. So, it, you know, Go ahead and feel free to pre-order it. It's available to pre-order everywhere. Um, if that wasn't cr- too crass of me, but you know what, <laughs> really, really be helping to, helping some bros out. If you know, get it, get it now or the first week, and don't don't put it off till the second. Just and say it. it. <laughs> and it, and it really, and I'm not just saying this. It really is a fun book. And even if you're not like a diehard hair metal glam metal fan and you're a hardcore metallica thrash metal fan you're gonna get a lot out of it there's a lot of you know as we discussed a lot of crossover and just a lot of fun stories and uh it, it's really well done so kudos to you guys thank you so much thank Thanks you for, for having us anytime anytime you want to talk metallica and get me out of my wife's hair please feel <laughs> free <laughs> thanks tom thanks rich thank you bye bye, bye. Thank you to Tom and Richard for coming on Metallicast and talking about their book, Nothing But a Good Time, The Uncensored History of the 80s Hard Rock Explosion, on sale everywhere March 16th. Check out the links in the episode description. If you are new to Metallicast, please do me a favor. Subscribe, download, leave a positive five-star review on Apple Podcasts. All that goes a long way into helping the podcast continue to grow and getting great guests like Tom and Richard. Also, please give Metallicast a follow on social media at MetallicastPod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Until next time, ladies and gentlemen, middle of your ass. Yeah. Fans, not experts.